Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Shai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to Malka Fleischer. Hi there. Okay, Malka, here we go. Uh, the Shai Fleischer Show, we are uh, um, broadcasting from Israel in a time of war, all right? Reminds me that in 2005, you and I were broadcasting uh, from the basement of the Gush Katif municipality uh, b- uh, uh, at Neve de Kalim in, uh, in Gush Katif, Gaza. And we had this big box. And the big box was an ISDN box. It connected to an ISDN line. The ISDN line connected to an ISDN line in Beit El. And in Beit El was the whole connection to the internet uh, and the, 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 you know, the early internet, and we had the Arut Sheva radio station there. And our whole thing was to broadcast. Arut Sheva sent us down there with this expensive piece of equipment that we lugged in our tiny little car, uh, that Peugeot, uh, and we lugged it down there. And it was, it was actually a high-tech piece of equipment. It had in it also a board, an attached board. It was, a, it was an ISDN box, but it had a board. The whole point of that whole it's thing. It's really interesting. Well, people like me. Yeah, people te- care about the technical... It, without technical, without the technical, it doesn't work. Details that you just gave them. All that was in order to yeah. broadcast from from Gaza and to say, don't do the disengagement. It's dumb. Stop it. And if you stop it, then we won't give away our land to the terrorists and create a terrorist state next door. And here we are now broadcasting again on the other side of all that when the disengagement really did happen, and and Gaza did become a terrorist state. Now we're fighting a war with the terrorist state. Uh, we're fighting a semi-war because right now we are uh, giving up uh, terrorists uh, and sending them back into Israeli society, no, no, no less, uh, while they release our hostages with their adroit you know, war that they, they, they put on us. So you know, right now there's frustration today. Uh, um, another horrific terror attack in Jerusalem where three people have been killed, murdered, um, a pair of brothers and a Dayan, right? And a and a Torah, and a Torah uh, um, decider has have been have been. Uh, I, un- I understood there was a woman, a twenty four year old woman who was killed. The picture is not yet clear to me totally, but there's uh, it's just coming out right now, and that is the situation that that we're facing. Now, I was talking with uh, Shoshana Jaskel, uh, who's uh, you know a very an influencer on on Twitter. We were just talking. I said to her, listen. She said to me, this is so horrible to, to start the day like this and all that. I said to her, listen, if we don't deal with this stuff, it's just like cancer. You can't look away from it. You cannot look away from it. You find out, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid a thousand times that, that you're diagnosed with cancer. So you, can, you have a choice right there. Either you're going to deal with it or you're not going to deal with it. You're not going to deal with it. It's going to eat you away. You're going to deal with it. It's going to be painful and ugly and long. But you got to deal with it. You got to kill the cancer cells. And what we got right now in this country is we have a metastasized jihad that is all around us. It is in Gaza. It is in Lebanon. It is in East Jerusalem, Eastern Jerusalem, in Jabal Mukaber, and in and in Isawiya, and in uh, what's the other one called? The the one the, that uh, the terrorists seem to have come out in Tzurbacher, and um, and it's in Israeli Arab cities like Um uh, or Yafo, or Akko, or Ramlin Lud. We got to deal with this stuff directly. We can't look away. We got to strike that jihad. If not, if we don't do it, if we, if we close our eyes, if we don't look at it, 
then our kids are going to have to look at it. And, uh, and there's a moment. I've come to a simple conclusion. <laughs> Maybe it's not simple. And my colleagues share this opinion, which is that Benjamin Netanyahu and his colleagues, this whole what we call branja, this whole uh, uh, elite uh, grouping, represent, are represented by the biblical story of Shaul. Shaul, the first king of Israel, able to build up the kingdom of Israel. People love him. He's a great, you know, he's, he, he looks great. He's a diplomat. He's, he's respected. But he just can't get rid of the bad guys. He just doesn't have it. He has a problem with the bad guys. He's kinda, he has some kind of addiction to even holding them up. But he's unable to slay the bad guys. And then King David comes in and he becomes a little bit more empowered and a little bit more empowered and a little bit more empowered, a little more disempowered. He has to run away from, from Shaul because Shaul, Saul, is, is chasing him. And in the meantime, Shaul starts to lose the plot and he's losing the plot. And that is akin to our government right now, which is good people, you know, great, great, have done great things, but they just are unable to look the Philistines and the jihad in the face and they can't do it. They can't do it. They will not get rid of it. And in fact, one could argue that in the meantime, uh, Hamas has been re-empowered with the, with the return of criminals to the society of Israel. It would be one thing if you, and you pointed this out to me, Malka, if you would just send them out to Africa, whatever it is, that would be like exile them. That would be one thing. But to bring them, to bring would-be killers who just happened to have bad luck and weren't able to do it, Bring him back into the Israeli bloodstream? That does not make any sense at all. So I'll tell you, like, the day starts off a little bit rough, right? The day starts off rough. But last night, Malka, you and I went and the kids went to a fabulous uh, barbecue made uh, here, not so far away, at the Gush Etzion main army base. And that army base was hopping last night. And and not only was it a barbecue, there was a musical concert there. That concert was so full of good energy. Every good Jewish song he ever knew, you know, was was played from you know Gesher Tzarmoto to Am Yisrael Chai to to Bachshavot uh, Tovot to whatever. All the all the songs that we sing were sung, and you could see that there is a spirit in Israel. Now, I've come to a simple conclusion. I want to hear your comments on this, Malka. My simple conclusion is. Even though the government and our reaction may disappoint, even though we could point to a lot of failures in the army and all that stuff, with all the stuff that I said, it is a time of opportunity. We saw yesterday in the army base, Am Israel wants Judaism and they want victory. Those two things. They want Judaism and they want victory. And that means that that is the inner guts of the Jewish state, and, uh, of, of the land of Israel and the Jewish state, the Jewish people. And that's what we have to focus on now. What are the opportunities? And I want to say to all the listeners of my show, if you think that coming to Israel now is not a big deal and nobody's going to really care, you're wrong. You cannot believe how touched people are by, uh, by American Jews, pro-Israel Israel lovers showing up here in the land of Israel right now. People are like, wow, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for coming right now. And I think that we all have to realize that this is a time of opportunity for every single one of us to touch lives right now, to bring people, make people stronger, to, 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 to angle the direction a little bit better. And that's what we have to do. We just have to be as much as possible with courage and with spirit and help angle the trajectories of individual lives and national life 
in the right direction. That's what I think. What do you think, Monica? Well, hello. I see that you have a lot of strong feelings today. Yes, today's uh, a day yes, of strong you feelings. Are, you are not alone. That's right. Um, everyone's having some strong feelings. There's a lot of ups and downs. Uh, we t- I think we've talked about this now a few times on the show, the, like the highs and lows. Like last night you said we went to a barbecue. It was thrown for soldiers in our region. Mm-hmm. Um, and some beautiful people paid a lot of money so that like really excellent meat and Sufganiyo came out. A little f- beginning of Kislev Sufganiyo because uh, Hanukkah is coming up. And, uh, and it was a really beautiful party. I was happy to watch it because... Um, it's nice to see the soldiers having a good time. You know, these soldiers that are around here, they aren't the ones who are dealing with like the border, right? But still here in Gush Etzion, um, there's real security threats. There's real security dangers. And those people are standing outside in the cold, in the rain, in the, in the mud, in the quiet, in the loud, in the whatever is going on. And they, uh, instead of sitting in their nice quiet, ho- quiet homes or going to their university classes or making the money that they make on a regular basis. They're out here serving the Jewish people. So it was nice to see them having a good time. And they really were having a good time. Like sometimes you think like a barbecue, you know, like it's nice, but like they were singing, they were dancing, they were eating, they were, and it was very nice to see this, um, this like boost in morale. It's a real thing. And it was it was really eye opening to watch it uh, myself and to take part in it. I felt like my morale was boosted even, and then it made me realize that I had needed a morale boost. And then I was upset, right? Because I was just like, "Oh, your morale was like not so good." Like it turns out that you needed uh, a like a boost in your morale. Yeah. Um, and you know this last period has been tough. Um, as all of you know, and people are, you know, still reach out every once in a while. How are you? Right. We saw some, some people, the people who came in to make this barbecue, uh, came in from America and they're like, how are you? Right. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okayer than most people, I think. And that makes me feel, uh, blessed. And it also makes me feel sad, um, for everybody else. You know, all of you guys know, having listened to this show for a while that like policy wise, we haven't been in favor um, of making a deal with Hamas, even though, of course, it's for these beautiful Jews who absolutely deserve to be brought home by us. Um, and we're all so happy for them and we're so happy for the families and we're all watching and being happy, you know. But at the same time, it's like it feels like what we're doing is sacrificing our long-term security. And that is just something that, that I think that people, you know, you're talking about Ishai, a time of opportunity, right? And it's like, it feels like something has happened with the Jews. I don't know how you want to like describe it metaphorically, like we've been pushed into a corner, or we've been like had the light shown on the situation, but something is happening where this like, casual life of like, you know, periodic like low-grade terror attacks and like a few murdered people here and a few murdered people there where we all like that's like somehow normal for us has become normal for us and then we're living in this cycle where we're all just like oh my god there was a terror attack that's horrible okay send the kids to school get out to work what holiday's coming up let's deal with that right 
And it feels like the Jewish people are in a little bit of a different place right now. Not a little bit, a lot of a different place right now. That the Jewish people are just like, no, 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 no. Right. Like, like we've tolerated an intolerable situation for a long time and we're done. There is like a feeling that something has like a switch has flipped or, or the twig is snapped or I'm trying to get the good metaphors today, but I'm failing. Something's happened. And the people are just like, no more. We had this terror attack today and people, of course, are sad. And, and these people who are lost, it's like in the midst of a war and after everything and people are still dying and in Jerusalem and it's just, it's just horrible. But it's just, it feels like the, the, the straw and the camel's back is going to break. It's like, that's it. Like we're we're at a place now, and you know you compared Ishai, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, to King Saul, and I think that's a good comparison because King Saul is like you know probably almost everybody out there knows a person named Shaul, right? Right. Definitely. Somebody's been named like people over the course of many generations have been named after this king, right? Right. He was a great king. He was known for his incredible kindness, and and he was like um he was like chosen by Hashem, and and he was uh legendary right but he was limited and in the end of the day he couldn't he couldn't take the jews long term he could establish a certain like kingdomness for the jews and like stabilize a little bit the situation for the jews but he could not take them to their destiny and i think that benjamin netanyahu is like a very apt character to compare king saul to because he has taken us very far. And in general, though, I don't think that it's about him. Um, but I really think it's about a whole generation of politics or political actors. And I think that they can be compared to King Shaul. But I have a different comparison that I like to make, um, which is to the generation of the desert. That we have a group of political actors who... who they went through a lot. They held the Jewish people together. Through them, all the Jewish people made it out into the desert and got saved. They cried out to God. They got the Jewish people saved, right? But in the desert, something, a realization occurred. Hashem made a, like, a shone light on a realization that these people could not be the generation to go into the land of Israel. There was something about them where they had gotten stuck at a certain level and and they couldn't take the values and the goals of the Jewish people and actualize them in the in the land of Israel wouldn't be successful. So you needed a new generation to rise up that could do that. And so they spent 40 years in the desert like that, right? Languishing. Not just languishing, learning Torah and, and you know, solidifying their culture and and uh, living, growing families, you know. Until they made it to the land of Israel. And to me, that's the comparison that speaks to me the most, which is that we have a generation of Israelis, and I'm not talking only by age, I'm talking by outlook now, okay? You have a generation, uh, because an old person can have a new outlook, it's possible, right? But, but politically, the old generation took us very far. They established this whole thing. Without them, we never would have had anything. 
they sacrificed and they scrimped and they built like a crazy system to just try and make this thing function in the best way that they knew how with, with very little experience. And they tried to, to make a country and they succeeded. And this country has gone very, very far. But now they have plateaued. They cannot open their minds to new con- like concepts for the next level of the Jewish uh, development. And so it's time for them to step aside. Now, it doesn't mean that they have to go into exile and it doesn't mean that they never have to be seen on the streets again. And it, never, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that they don't have a vision for the future that will work for us. And so, I, you know, we need their advice. We need their guidance. We need, uh, you know, the floor plans of the buildings. But like we need new fresh blood up in here. Marco, <clears throat> speaking of uh, fresh blood, I had a chance to speak to a young group uh, of a youth organization called Aardvark. That's what they're called. Yeah. Uh, I think they actually chose that name because they wanted to be first on the list of choices. Right. So they're double A. You cannot beat that. Right. They're Aard- always at the top of the list. Aardvark. Yeah, it was smart. And what is an Aardvark? Is that like an anteater? I what, think so. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and Israel should be like the anteater. You know Why? what I mean? We should just stick our n- nose into the tunnel, lick up those, Ew, lick up gross. those bad guys, just then just clean out those those tunnels with that. Okay. Yeah, we should aardvark. In any case, I'm gonna. I want to play to you the uh, speech that I gave to the aardvarkers. Okay. Or or the varkers or the aardvarker Rebbe. I was the aardvarker Rebbe, and I I want to play you that speech. Before I do, I really want to say again that it's a time of opportunity. And you said good things, Malka. And thanks. There's there's really ways to connect right now. Let's keep it strong. Let's keep it strong right now. And I'm telling this to myself. Let's keep it strong. First uh, place of strength is Hebron. That is the tomb of the mamas and the papas and the strong Jewish community that supports it. Right now, we have really a lot of reserve soldiers. And just this week, we fed them and all kinds of uh, awesome barbecues and things. You could be part of that right now. It's an awesome thing to be part of. And I think we could really do uh, a lot for the soldiers of Hebron. Uh, and that's what I would do right now. And that's hebronfund.org. And, of course, we look forward to seeing you here. Uh, the people that come here now, they have a big merit, have a big schut. Um, another- and I think they leave uplifted as well. Definitely. Say, like, the, uh, the potential to give is very, very high, and the potential to receive is very, very high. That's right. Uh, still, the Temple Mount is open for visitation. Uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, you want to learn more about it, go to highonthehar.com. And if you're here in, t- if you're here in Israel or you're coming in, uh, go to the mountain of God and pray there. It's a local call. It's more like actually face-to-face. Uh, so get in there and check out highonthehar.com and be part of their efforts to open up the, 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 uh, the uh, consciousness of the Temple Mount to all of us and hopefully a temple one day. Bezrat Hashem soon. And um, I also want to recommend people read the right newses uh, because you need that in terms of your mental diet. Your mental diet is very important. JNS.org and JewishPress.com. Maka, uh, just a moment of levity here for a second. Okay. I see that you're sporting a new uh, pair of shoes there. Yes. Uh, on my last trip to America, I, was, uh, I had the great merit of getting you some, what very are those? Puffy shoes. Puffy slip-on shoes? Yeah, they're squishy. The squishies. They're good for cooking in the kitchen. 
and I could stand up for a long time. I had been in California maybe like two, two, three years ago, and I got you a different pair, and you wore those for a long time until they were like destroyed. And I got you a new pair yes. of uh, of slip-ons. Your mom does not think they're pretty. They she are. Told me that. They are awesome. They are awesome. <laughs> they're really cool. Why do you mention them? Because I see your uh, your uh, they're making me happy that you have a new uh, something. There's got to be a light. There's got to right. be a happy it's light. It's definitely, that. that isn't like the weirdest thing. I mean, it was weird initially, but I want to say it's not the weirdest thing. Oh, and speaking of that. Those little things, because it's not such an easy time, you guys. Yeah. So like, it's okay. Yeah. You know, do the little things that make you happy, that bring a little, yeah. eat that sandwich, get that iced coffee. Yeah. Buy yourself the shoe, take that walk, learn that piece of Torah, spend that extra 10 minutes with your friend, like do the things that you need to do. We have a window in our bedroom that the in the wintertime, especially the sun rises right towards that window. And in the wintertime, a lot of times I just like stand there and get sun. Oh yeah, you get morning. a little sun bake. Yeah, I do face. a little like three, four minutes and I like feel great. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just an important thing. It's time. Yeah. do You know, they talk about like self-care. Yeah. Like do something nice for yourself. Well, we need to shine a light right do now. Do something nice for other people too. Absolutely. Everybody around you is dealing as well. That's right. You know? That's right. So take that take that second to show some kindness to somebody. That's a great point, Malka. And, and uh, right now we have... Uh, we have we have Hanukkah coming. Yes, and before Hanukkah is my father's yurt site. So I want to mention uh, my father's uh, yurt site, which is uh, the, his day of passing, and uh, that's happening. That's happening uh, this Sunday. So that's Alexander Ben Benjamin. I want to dedicate the show to him today. The Alexander Ben Benjamin is his yurt site this Sunday, the the twentieth. Uh, he died young, sadly. And Bezrat Hashem is neshama should have an aliyah. And you should get a little nachas from the show and the stuff that we're doing. Amen. Um, and I want to thank the people who, who leave a little bit of, of coin at uh, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai. Thank you for that coffee so, so much. Cal-, Cal writes, love the show. You and Malka, Ben, and Rabbi Shimshon, your friends who come on, the other guests, always I learn something and I feel uplifted, always. Even in these last seven terrible weeks, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazak. May we be strengthened. Amen. 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 Thank you so, so thank much. Thank you very much, Carol. I want to thank, thank also Krista. She put up a, a video on Instagram. She has her own Instagram account. She's not like an influencer or anything. She's just like an awesome. She's human an influencer being. on us. She's just like a human being out there. Yeah. And she put up this like beautiful video of herself holding an Israeli flag outside her house. And she and it was like with music, like I'll I'll like. I forget, I forget exactly the words. It's like I'll stand with you. I'll like put my life with yours. That kind of thing. Amazing. And it's just like man. I gotta say that stuff. It really lights up my heart. I want to say something about. It that, makes Maka. me feel like like there's just there's so many good people out there, and I know that that all of you listening out there, your hearts are just like full with the desire to help uh, push this project forward. You know what I mean? For the Jews, for yourself. For the whole world, just to see the good stuff happen that we've all been waiting for for so long. That's right. And every single one of us can do something more and can light that candle right now in somebody else's heart. Okay, somebody who has been doing it for a very long time is the one and only amazing reporter and has been doing it for decades. His name is Walter Bingham. Walter Bingham. Walter Bingham is 99 He's, wow. He likes to say going is in his hundredth year. Wow! And he's still going strong. He was just in Germany. Kvalt, that Re- man, Bli reliving. So amazing. He relived the uh, and he reenacted along with others the Kinder Transport. Wow. 
uh, our own brave and intrepid reporter, Ben Bresky, ventured to meet Walter Bingham. And so this week's uh, show is about somebody who's uh, turning 100. Wow. And who has done much more for Am Yisrael than uh, Henry Kissinger, who passed away today and who uh, in many ways articulated Israeli weakness to this very day, starting with the forcing Israel not to um, be the first to respond to, not to have a, 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 a what's it called, Pre- a, a strike. Preemptive. A preemptive strike at the Yom Kippur War, and that, la- and that caused so many more things. And so Walter Bingham is, uh, is I think, he's the other 100-year-old who's doing amazing things Leave for Israel. That's right, and he uh, continues to be strong. So here's our own Ben Bresky interviewing Walter Bingham. This is a moment in Jewish history. My name is Ben Bresky, and this week I'm going to interview Walter Bingham, who is a journalist and reporter. He is the host of Walter's World on Israel National News and Israel News Talk Radio, and his articles can be seen in the Jerusalem Post. When Walter was young, he was in the kinder transport. Recently, he participated in a reenactment of the kinder transport, and he traveled to Germany just coincidentally when the war started. So, Walter, I'm sure you have a lot of interesting things to say about your trip and about the unexpected events that happened in Israel just as you left. Well, yes, we were scheduled to do this recreation of the kinder transport, and then the war broke out on Shabbat, but we still went on the trip on Sunday. When I say we, there were three ex-kinder who were still fit to travel. I was the oldest. I was almost 16 when I went on the kinder transport. My colleague, George Sheffy, he was seven or eight, and then there was Paul Alexander. There were three of us, and he was one year and seven months old, so he, he talked about various other things of his, his youth. The organization that organized it were March of the Living. March of the Living are best known for their marches from Auschwitz to Birkenau, but that's not really all they do. They're involved in very many other things. This was one of their events. So we flew out from Israel to Berlin. George, who came from Berlin, was interviewed at various places that he remembered from his youth. By the way, our kosher food was supplied everywhere by Chabad, very kindly. The next day, we went to a monument in Berlin, and we were photographed and interviewed there. And then from there... In the early afternoon, we already went on a train across Germany, about six hours, to the city of my birth, Karlsruhe, which is totally on the other side of the country. The next day, I had three and a half hours of filming at various locations in the city of my birth. And in the afternoon, once again, we were on a train, changing at Cologne on the way to Amsterdam did some filming in the morning. In various places are monuments to the kinder transport, and those were the main places we went to. And the next day from Amsterdam, we went by road to the Hoek van Holland, which is the port north of Amsterdam, where we took a ferry to England, to Harwich. Actually, 
Kinder were transported to that place, to the Hoek van Holland from all over Germany, Austria, and the by then occupied Sudetenland. But all kinder transport went via Hoek van Holland, via that port, and from there by the that kind of ferry to Harwich, that's the port in England, and from Harwich by train to London, Liverpool Street Station, one of the main stations in London, and everyone went there. And at the station on the platform, the children were uh, sorted out or divided according to the ticket, I suppose. We had around our neck to their various destinations. Then there was a ceremony in Hyde Park, a religious ceremony with the chief rabbi, that was the end of the official trip. And what did the Germans that you met and the British people, what were their attitudes? Well, it was different from 1988 when I was invited to that town of my birth by the municipality, who were very nice, but the population didn't seem to care about us. Nobody smiled, nobody laughed, nobody waved at that time. This time it was different. We were approached by locals in Germany. Even in Amsterdam, I noticed, they were very interested. But of course, you know, we made what you call in Yiddish Agerida. You couldn't miss us because we had two cameramen, a sound man, and lighting. And so that was quite a commotion in the street, naturally. But they were friendly, they were interested, and they were very happy to see us. I'm not sure about all, but many. On the whole, the atmosphere was so much different. Of course, it was already war, and people had already heard about the tragedy that happened. So it, it was quite fresh, and people were aware of it. So the, the Germans were different from what they used to be. Just as an aside, this week, the president of Germany was in Israel, and the president of the Bundestag of the German parliament were also here and they spoke glowingly about Israel and their support and how much they're on our side and that is the German government. Was it just a different attitude in the 1980s of a different generation? Was it the circumstances? I suppose you're quite right. I suppose there was a different generation from 1988 to now. One mustn't forget that immediately after the war the generation were the children of those who voted for Hitler, the generation of Nazis, and their children were still indoctrinated. And it takes several generations to take the poison out of their system. And today, thank God, I think it's much better. There is an element of neo-Nazis, but that is relatively small, and the main bulk of the population, I think, have woken up to the fact that they were duped by the Nazis. You know, Walter, there's some people who would say, Germany, we should never set foot in that country ever again. But it was important for you to go there, and I'm curious why. Well, whenever I talk to someone about kinder transport in the past, they immediately brought up the name of Dr. Schoenfeld or Nicholas Winton. Now, both of those men were, in my view, tzaddikim, because each one of them on his own initiative saved something over 600 children 
and they were very much publicised, particularly Nicholas Winton, who was non-Jewish, and everyone knew about that. But very few people seemed to know about the Kindertransport. That gave the whole thing the name and saved thousands of children. And so it was very important for me to take part in this to make sure that that particular event is publicised, and it was. International Children's Day takes place every year on the 20th of November, and some Israeli newspapers, including Ma'ariv and Israel Hayom, noted that the Kindertransport recreation and commemoration took place coinciding with International Children's Day, and they also tied it in with what's happening in Israel today with the hostages, many of whom are children. And with that, Walter, I want to thank you for coming on. And if you have any final words you want to share with the listeners. It is very regrettable. It's regrettable that those of us who had to endure the horrors of the Nazi regime have today again live through these tragic events. This has been a moment in Jewish history. I will be posting articles about Walter's recent trip as well as links to his podcast, Walter's World, on benbreski.substack.com. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer, who was instrumental in setting up Walter with his first radio show in Israel. Thank you to all the listeners, and Shalom. Ben, thank you so much for bringing the voice man, of Walter man, to the man. show. Rock stars. That's amazing. Thank you very much, Ben. Walter Bingham is, is a legend, and uh, and we have a big schut to have uh, worked with him uh, at Arutz Sheva, and uh, he continues to be part of our life. God bless you guys. All right, Maka, uh, it's time to put on my, sh- my, my talk with Aardvark, so I wanted to play that for you. And before we do, I just want to thank the good people at prohibitionpickle.co.il, and uh, they are making great food and, and helping people out, help, helping... Uh, Help help make Shabbos for women whose husbands are away and many other people who need help right now. So that's uh, prohibitionpickle.co.il. I want to thank the good folks at Retro Watch Guy. And right now, some great... That's that's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is like Retro Watch. But I mean, my man has it, right? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's so good. cool. That yeah. should definitely be there. Logo. Yeah, by me, my am like old school watch. That Basman is Aze, awesome. getting it today. <laughs> Basman, get it, Zman. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so that's retrowatchguy.com. And, so cool. and I love my retro watch guy watch. Uh, and so that's really cool. Uh, and of course, uh, of course, of course, kosher cycle tours. I would love a little kosher cycle tour right now. It would be, it would be great. And the weather's so nice. I would love to live in a scenario in which we could take a kosher cycle tour comfortably in Israel with no concerns whatsoever about our security. It'll happen, but we got to do a lot of work till then. So check out koshercycletours.com. Okay, Malka, let's do the Aardvark speech. I recorded it. It's got two different audio components because the first part I recorded with a microphone, then it stopped working for some reason. And the second part, Ben Bresky did his best to, to pump it up. But I think it'll be instructive for you. There's a lot there. Uh, and and a lot of young people asking real questions. These are not these are liberal minded, left of center uh, young people that are pro Israel that are here in Israel uh, for the year and have not left because of the war. And they had some tough questions for me as well. And so here's my presentation to Ardvark in Yerushalayim. I am the spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. Uh, Hebron is a community one hour south 
from Jerusalem. It's one hour from here. It is the capital of a region called Judea. It is the Jewish people's most ancient city. It's, it's where we have the oldest Jewish community that has existed for the Jewish people. It's also home for, of the uh, first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. That is the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, also known as the Marat HaMachpelah. Who's been there? Anybody? Nice. Okay, so some people in the room and the rest have not. So Marat HaMachpelah houses uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, uh, and also the head of Esav, according to legend. Uh, but the, the point is, is it's a very ancient site, and on top of that site is a 2,000-year-old building. That 2,000-year-old building is perfectly uh, intact, uh, and it is a very historical building, and it's the Marat HaMachpelah building, and people visit it from all over the world. In normal times, we have about a million visitors a year to the Marat HaMachpelah. It is holy to both Jews, Muslims, Christians. Abraham is buried there. It's very important. It's also a, a so-called settlement which means that it's in uh, the heart of a, uh, a contested city. Uh, but we are proud to uh, be working there and living there and fighting for Jewish rights in this place. Uh, it is a city that has, we have a lot of colleagues, we have a lot of friends on the Arab side, but we also have some enemies. It's also a Hamas city in part. Uh, and so we are a defended ethnic minority in the city. And so we defend ourselves from jihadism, and, and folks that want to get rid of us, uh, we, we don't let that happen. Right now, uh, we're in a different state of affairs because of the conflict that Israel's in right now. Uh, after the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, um, and that the Simchat Torah war, the 7th of October war, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're at a heightened uh, state of readiness in Hebron, and uh, we're, you know, uh, in, in a different kind of uh, mental situation. Most of our men are in uh, reserve duty, uh, not necessarily in Gaza, most of them locally, mostly in Hebron, taking defensive positions, making sure uh, that we're not overrun by the uh, jihadis that exist in the town. Not everybody in the town is a jihadi at all. We have a whole tribe that's very friendly to us, the Jabri tribe. I myself have eaten the iftar dinner there many times. Uh, but there are also not a few enemies. So we do our best to make sure that uh, we continue to be safe. I wanted to start my talk today by asking you a simple question, which is why do you think that um, Hamas attacked Israel on the 7th of October? Like, what was the, what was the reason? Like, what, what, or, or let's put it this way. What was the strategic goal that they were trying to achieve? Anybody, go ahead. Kill as many Jews as possible. Okay, but... And, and maybe that is the answer, okay? But just to kill many Jews is, shall I say, if you're like, I'm going to kill a lot of Jews, but then they're going to come and kill me back, then what, what was their goal? There, there, there was, was there, was there, like, fear. just to sow fear. Okay, fair enough. In order to what? In order to what? Sow fear. Well, to get a response. To get a response. So, and therefore what? To achieve what? Martyrdom. Okay. All right. That's one direction. Good. Next. <laughs> To, get, to liberate the land, to get rid of Israel. But you must believe that they didn't think that they would have the power necessary to really get rid of us. They're a terror organization. They're not a ready army, like a standing army. You've got to do a lot to get rid of a whole country like Israel. When I thought about like the strategic, also the timing, it falls to a time, I'd say, where there's a lot more 
let's say, peace was a lot more peace in the future, like possible peace, also with a lot of diplomacy between Israel and different Arab states here in the region, tightening the bonds and strengthening peace agreements, and maybe Hamas's Hamas's organization that completely rejects it. So they maybe saw the what happened that they just tried to make peace more difficult or impossible with other Arab states and hope they maybe also hope for that other Arab states or organizations may join in and therefore reheat gotcha uh, I think I have to agree that I think that their goal was was strategic more than just to kill a lot of Jews more than try to take over the land I think that there was a real problem coming up for the jihadi way of thinking and that one was the fall of the big anti-Israel state, which has been one of Israel's you know, big enemies for the last hundred years, and that's Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia was starting to teeter towards the Abraham Accords. Now, what is the Abraham Accords? I'm gonna answer that by saying that there are really two different narratives. Two different narratives, I call them narrative trees, okay? I'm gonna to describe to you two narrative trees. Here's one narrative tree. Israel is, a Semitic country that speaks a similar language to Arabic. We are genetic cousins with the Arabs. And in fact, the Quran says in four verses that the Jewish people are going to live in the land of Israel. And the Jews and the Arabs are cousins. As I said, similar genetics, similar language, similar religion. And we've had this war in the past, but it's time to put that away and time to make an Abrahamic region because we're all the children of Abraham. And Israel's a tribal people, like other tribal peoples. They will live on their tribal lands. And we, will the, we the Arabs, will live in different parts of the tribal lands. And we'll start to have cooperation. Start to have cooperation. So from, there'll be a train line from Istanbul coming down through the ancient biblical city of Damascus. And split off. One will go to Amman. The other one will go to Jerusalem, towards Alexandria and Egypt, towards Riyadh on the, on the sea, and Mecca in the desert, and all the way to the Persian Gulf. We're going to have this like, new thing where we're going to have an Abrahamic alliance, Abrahamic peoples. We're going to share the historical wealth of this place. And we're going to, we're going to see the beauty. Now, in, in UAE, they just recently constructed a synagogue, mosque, and church complex, which is like this like, Abrahamic center. And it was going in this direction. Came President Trump. You can like him or not like him. But... He had the uh, ability to envision this thing called the Abraham Accords. By the way, the, the name was not his or, 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 uh, or even David Friedman's. It was actually some, some Puerto Rican general ran into the room like, we need a name for this thing. And he came up with this name, the Abraham Accords. Uh, in any case, the Abraham Accords was moving. And now Saudi Arabia, which was this thing, which was anti-Israel forever, wouldn't even let Israel fly over Saudi Arabian airspace Suddenly, El Al is flying over Saudi Arabia, which makes it a much shorter flight to India, etc. And suddenly, you felt that there's a change. Well, if you're Iran, Iran and you are trying to uh, uh, continue to foment a war against Israel, and you want the Islamic world to be against Israel, and not to fall into, uh, and not to fall into this Abrahamic Accords, you want to start something that will make the Arab world once again hate the Jews and remember that thing. Now, here's another narrative tree. Here's another narrative tree. This area is an Islamic land. This whole region is Islamic lands. And in the Middle Ages, and it's been so since the 600s. Since the 600s, it's been Islamic. Then, in medieval times, came the Crusaders. 
And the Crusaders were these folks from Germany and France and England, and they came in, and they took over Muslim lands. It was called the Crusaders. They had the Latin Kingdom, okay? And Islam was able to get rid of them and push them out. When the Mamluks came and other Arab groups came, they pushed them back out, Islamic groups. Then came World War I, and, and once again, the Crusades came at them, and the Brits came and pushed out the Turks, and they pushed out the Muslims from the land, and then they brought in the Jews, the same Jews who rejected Muhammad, the same Jews who even rejected Jesus. Those Jews, they were now the emissaries of this crusade. And this crusade is now stuck. The Jews, which are, by their own uh, admission, are a Western implant in this region. They don't speak Arabic. They're white. And they are a different group of people that don't belong here. And now they are occupying our Islamic lands. And we've got to get rid of them. And it's a religious obligation to get rid of them. It's a religious must because once an Islamic land has been conquered, it's not allowed to be lost. That's called Dar el-Harb and Dar el-Salam. The Dar el-Harb is the area of the sword which, which needs to be conquered. And Salam is where, you know, there's even a capital in Tanzania called Dar el-Salam, which is, which is where... Islam has conquered. So now the Jews are nothing but the next crusade. And if you read the Hamas Charter, you will find that it's all over the Hamas Charter that indeed the Jews are nothing but white colonialist crusaders. Coming, that's right, coming to represent, that's right, coming to represent the white Christian West taking over Islamic lands. All right? And so, and so now which narrative tree do you go with? Now, in order to get liberal Americans uh, to buy into that, so they're not going to give you the, the crusader tree because that's not going to really be that attractive because you're like, who's crusaders? What are you talking about? Israel's not a crusade. And so they have a new way of presenting that. That presentation is something different, which is Israel as a white colonialist, but like in the, in the sense of you turn now to, to American, let's say, uh, the, the black community and, and others, and you say, you see, what happened? You guys okay? Yeah. Okay. So you, could, you see the Jews are actually just like those white colonialists who came and took over Africa, right? And therefore they fit right into that, into that in framework. Or, for example, I've had many dealings with Germans, a German press, and they don't understand, to them they feel bad that, the, that, that once again, the whites are colonizing a, a, a different land. They feel bad because they think that the Jews are somehow their creation or, or somehow that they should feel bad about it. And they don't feel bad that like we now, they don't remember the Holocaust and that we should have our homeland and we deserve our land and that we're actually Middle East people. They have a totally different narrative, which is post-God, post-colonial, post-family, and uh, post even guns and defense, and they don't like the Jews because the Jews are now this like gun-toting white colonialist thing. And so uh, you have uh, these different narrative trees. You have these different narrative trees, and we fit into narrative trees that make our enemies weaken Israel and make our enemies hungry to, to try to destroy us. Now what they did with this war was very successful. They turned the Arabs back into hating Israel. Why? Because they, they needed Israel to kill 14,000 Arabs. They needed that. Hamas did. Because then they could be like, look, look what Israel does. They kill our people. You can never, Saudi Arabia, you can never make peace with these guys. They kill Arabs. 
Another narrative tree is jihad is bad for Arabs. So I turn to my Arab friends and I say to them, it's the Hamas that's killing you. They're taking your money, they're all corrupt, they're building tunnels instead of a life, and, and they make endless war, and they're destroying the Arab world. That's a narrative that's a little bit harder to, to sell sometimes. So, that's the situation. When I face a German a press, so they ask me, they say to me, why are you here in Hebron? What should I answer to that? Why do, why do you live in Hebron? What's the answer to that? So the first answer I give them is, well, it's the Bible, you know? We're the people of the Bible. The Bible shows our connection here. What do, what do young German press folks think when I tell them the Bible? Young German folks. Not nice Christian Germans. Nice German regular folks living in Frankfurt. Exactly. They're like, what the heck are you talking to me about? They don't think about the Christian Bible. They've never read it. They, they think to themselves... I cannot believe you just mentioned the Bible. What do you, take women over the head and drag them into a cave? What are you, a Neanderthal? Where do you live? And so the word Bible means nothing to them. And then when you talk about, if I say to them nationalism, it's because of Jewish nationalism, I want to protect my land. What do they say to me? Nationalism is? Nazism, there you go. So they're like, yeah, nationalism is bad. So I'm like, I'm like in total trouble, because I just said Bible, they didn't like it, nationalism. And when they say defense, defense and guns, what do they think? Yeah, guns are bad. You know, you got you guys are all a bunch of, you know, endlessly armed, you know, hooligans. Anybody here from Texas? Any Texas? Tennessee does not count. It counts. It counts close. If I go to Tennessee and I say to them, I'm in, I'm in the land of Israel because of the Bible. What do they say? They say hell yeah, that's right. And I say to them, well, because of nationalism, what you guys call patriotism. What do they say? They say, hell yeah. And if I say to them, we got to defend ourselves against the bad guys with guns. Amen. They say, amen. That's right. So, the narrative that you present in, in Tennessee is, is, is more readily acceptable. That's the challenge that we have right now. And I think that if we, if we look at it, if we look at it from this lens, we'll start to kind of uh, sense, you know, what this war is really about. What this war is really about. And to be actually impressed with their success. The bad guys have had a lot of success against us. Uh, and they have a success also. You do know that TikTok is showing at least 10 to 1, if not 100 to 1, more pro-Hamas videos. Have you seen that yourself? Yeah. It's already been studied. We face a few different wars. Israel actually, the truth of the matter is, now this is something, if I speak at a liberal American temple, like a conservative reform temple, I get a lot of times people say to me, yeah, but you're the strongest country in the region. And I'm always like, that's your perspective. My perspective is that we got Hamas on one side, Hezbollah on another side, Iran from the east, uh, um, jihadism on American campus, jihadism in, in TikTok, and so, and we, not to mention the Israeli Arabs who are also armed and fought with us a conflict in May of 2020, uh, 2021, and the uh, West Bank, so-called Palestinian Arabs, their you know, armament against us and their Hamas ideology. So I'm just like, I don't think we should be as confident as all that. We should be, one second I'll get to, we should be uh, 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 ready to defend because there's a lot of forces out there, all kinds of forces that want us to shrink, to want us to, to, want, to want, they want to get us off our land and they want, now by the way, the new claim is that September, October 7th didn't happen or that if it happened, the Israeli choppers 
killed the majority. You heard about this now? It's starting to come out. That's like this week's, this week's new narrative, right? So we've got a, we've got a big battle. Um, and that's why, that's why a person like me, has a, it really lives a life where I see the world in terms of, on the one hand, I've got kids and, and a wife, and we have a decent life, a happy life. But we see ourselves still in battle uh, for our Jewish rights, and especially our Jewish rights in, in Judea and Samaria, our ancestral homeland, and in places like Hebron. They want to use every trick in the book to get us out of there. Uh, from, from UNESCO that decided a few years ago that the, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs is a Palestinian World Heritage Site. It's a 2,000-year-old building built by a Jewish king on top of Jewish tombs from 3,800 years ago. No, it's a Palestinian World Heritage Site. To uh, all the challenges that we face on American campus, TikTok, etc., we've got a battle going on. And I don't think that we should be, we should be confident because we believe in Jewish destiny and God in, 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 the, in the strength of our peoplehood, the strength of our army. Uh, but to be just confident, like we're the biggest guys on the block around here, no. We're a small group. And there are other small groups, armed minorities like us. You know what's another group like us? The Kurds. The Kurds. Are they Muslim? They're Muslim. But who hates the Kurds? The Syrians, the Turks, the Iraqis, the Iranians. And they are an armed ethnic minority in this region, and that's how they survive. That's what we are. We are an armed ethnic minority, a tribal people on a tribal land, holding on to what's ours. There's a lot of narratives that want to be told to erase our rights and erase our strength. And I think it's incumbent upon us to fight back. That's what I have to say, and now I'm ready to answer your questions. And I, I owe somebody here, was it you? Somebody who did I owe? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Tell me your name, where are you from? What did you mean by being a Hamas city? I mean that the main spirit of the mayor is a Palestinian Authority mayor, but he's, he's a guy who murdered six Jews in 1980. His name is Tessir Abu and, and the atmosphere that's strong in the mosques and the other places is Hamas. That's the strong atmosphere there. And so the education that the kids are getting, I spoke to my Arab friend in Hebron. He told me right now Hamas is riding very high in Hebron. In Hebron. Very high. The kids think Hamas is amazingly cool. So, like you said, when you speak at, like, a, for instance, a temple, and people's like, "But Israel's the strongest country in the region," and you're like, "Well, I'm just curious. Like, do you like do you think Israel is the strongest country in the nation, even if it's like, I'm not saying it's easy. Like, there's people on all sides of this country that aren't a very big fan of Israel. Like, it's not like it's a an easy." Uh, a job to have, but like I'm just curious whether or not you think Israel is the is the power that the rest of the world kind of deems it to be. We have a strong military and a strong economy, but Israel's borders have shrunken a lot since I was a kid and became a much smaller country, much smaller. It, it we have issues inside our country with the, with the, with Bedouins shaking down businesses in the negative. Same thing in the north. It's called protection rackets. We had a war in 2021 where 10 synagogues were burnt down. Um, and um, I think that we should not overestimate our position and we should not underestimate the enemy. Just one second. For a person like me, what happened on October 7th was not a huge surprise and something that we've been warning about. And so in 2005, I was amongst the people who were trying to block the disengagement, believing 
the dismantling of Jewish communities in Gaza and leaving that area. And our call was, if we leave this area, it would become a forward jihad base. And they'll tunnel, rocket, and do whatever to destroy us from there. You're giving, you're giving headwind to the, an appetite to the jihad. Did you live in this? I did, for a month and a half before the evacuation eviction. We tried to stop it, we moved down there, and we fought desperately to try to stop this evacuation. And, and we were right, we were right. Howdy. Uh, we were right that, that indeed that's what happened. It became a Hamas terrorist state par excellence, uh, and they've used every, uh, except for the money that they pocketed, they used everything else to create a war machine against us. I just think that we should not be haughty. Haughtiness is a killer. I don't like to underestimate my enemies. I prefer to overestimate. I prefer to respect my enemies. Not think that they're a bunch of dummies. I don't think that. And I don't, I don't joke around with them. This is the Middle East. You don't play around with these things. Do you think that America being Israel's biggest ally has an effect on other Arab countries' decisions towards us in a sense? Because we have a lot of conflict between us and Iran, but if Iran really wanted to, they could send missiles here anytime they wanted to, but they don't. So I'm saying in a sense, is, is one of the reasons that we're not constantly getting attacked by other Arab nations because we have America as a big ally? Okay, let me answer it a little bit more broadly, which is how I see the Israel-America relationship. It is complex. It is complex. Because on the one hand, America still is of the remaining superpowers. Maybe, maybe it's waning a little bit uh, in terms of its superpower status with trillions of dollars in debt to China and other things. Uh, could be that it's winning as a superpower, maybe not. Uh, when you come to America, it still feels like a big, powerful country with great cities and, and lots of good folks. And, and so there's no question that our relationship with America you know, protects us at the UN and other places. On the other hand, it really depends which America. Because to me, the Biden administration, for example, Biden and Obama sent $250 billion to Iran. Now, just in the last few weeks, Biden has released about $16 billion to Iran and has tried to get to a place of rapprochement with, with, uh, with Iran and uh, is always pushing us to relinquish our land to the Palestinian Authority, which is exactly what happened in 2005, this engagement, which is you give away the land and make a terrorist state. And we're like, no, we want to live in our ancestral homeland. He's like, no, you should create a, a Palestinian Authority here. And they fund it. And they fund a lot of stuff that basically ends up being the enemies of Israel. So the relationship is complex. And, and I am not anti-America, uh, not at all. But I'm also not like going to tell you that it's all great, because it's not. It's really not. Uh, pushing us to give away our land to our enemies is bad and dumb and ends up hurting us. Uh, and, and the Biden administration is pushing them real hard. Real hard, and they've also created another narrative, which is now settler violence. You know, we're attacking the Arabs. Come on, like we're under attack here, defending ourselves. Um, so it's a complex relationship. I think that when you when you deal with America, you you have to make distinctions. America is a big country, and we have allies and we have non-allies in that big country. We have allies and we have people who support our enemies, uh, and uh, you know. Congress has a lot of great people that are pro-Israel, and then it's got some people who are not pro-Israel. Rashida Tlaib, 
and the, the rest of those folks, they are, they are, you know, they are, but they don't even deny it. They, they, they say we're, we're enemies of Israel. Um, and so, so there's a, there's a struggle. Another place is American campus. An American campus, you're going to meet a lot of professors who are, who are anti-Israel, and you're going to meet a lot of clubs and things like that that are, that are, that are anti-Israel. So, you know, is, is America, you know, just an ally? Not exactly, and so we have to like like with a like with a big ally like that. You gotta negotiate it. Another thing America does is that they give us money. How much money do they give us? No, not a lot. See, this is a big misnomer. The answer is three billion dollars here. Three billion dollars. Three billion dollars is a lot or a little bit of money. It's a lot. It's bubkish. Okay, our 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 GDP, our yearly GDP, is approaching five hundred billion. So we're talking about that it's not 1%, okay? And so, and so we, and that money is good money for joint development. We developed uh, uh, munitions and ideas for defense that, that they use. But the problem with that money is they don't let us buy from other people, from China, Russia, whatever. They don't let us develop our own stuff. They don't like it if we make our, we make our own tanks, but they stopped us from making our own jets, etc. So that relationship is, has, has uh, more than one side. And I'm not anti-American. I have friends who are. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not anti. I think there's good people there and good people in Congress, and so and there's there's good folks. And certainly in the in the Texas Tennessee places, there's a lot of good folks. And in Florida, DeSantis is, a, is I think an unbelievable guy. Um, uh, and you can disagree, guys. When I say when I said DeSantis is an unbelievable guy, I don't mean to say all of his policies. I'm not talking about his other policies. I'm not talking now about like abortion and stuff. That's not my, that's not my issue. I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about Israel. Do you believe that the Palestinian people have that people claim to the land that they do? Right. The answer is no. You asked whether I believe the Palestinian people have a right to this land. What I think you, what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the question is do they have a right to a state? Because there's a big difference in my mind whether they have a right to a state or a right to their house and their property. Those are very different things. One is called civil rights, the other one is called national rights. If you ask me, does any person, Jew or non-Jew, have a right to their property that they've owned for X number of years? Sure. Of course they do. And that right should be protected by the state of Israel's liberal-minded protections of, 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 of property. But do I think that Palestinians have a right to a state in this land? I certainly do not. But how can you ignore the history that the Palestinian people do have in this land? I, it's not, not only do I not ignore it, <laughs> not only do I not ignore it, I know it. And that's why I say what I say. Palestinian people, let's, let's put it this way. Arabs in general have never had a state in this land. One second, just put your hands up for a second. They've had various controls. They always kept this as a backwater place. Palestinianism, if you go back, uh, was the Arabs, the Arab leaders themselves, and I could pull up all the, the times that they said, we created the consciousness of Palestine to fight Israel. We created it to be, a, be a, a narrative that this is an alternative narrative. There was never a Palestinian state. There is no Palestinian history in this land of, a, of, a, of any kind of gathering. They were Syrians, they were Turks, they were a million things, but it was a backwater of these provinces. And so there's no Palestinian coinage, there's no Palestinian stamp, there's no Palestinian... There's, 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 just, there's no Palestinian king. There's nobody before Yasser Arafat. Nobody. They don't, they don't have anything that they could claim is, is, is really theirs. Now, did Palestinian Arab locals live here? Yes. Yes. 
Yes, they did. There's no question about it. In a huge numbers, no. You can even read Mark Twain uh, traveling, and it's it's empty. It's empty land. They had a few thousand, a few hundred thousand people. It's it's true. But the majority of Arabs that we have today came as a result of Zionism. Why? Because finally in the Middle East there was job opportunities. There was finally going to be some money around here. So they started moving in. They started moving in. Now, uh, if you're going to already claim that Palestinians have a right to the state, a much better claim is Jordan, which is 90% Palestinian. They have a totally fake king who was brought in by the British. He's a Hashemite, a Bedouin from Saudi Arabia. Has nothing to do with Jordan. They brought him in, read the history. They brought him in, but like, they're like, he, they didn't want him to go fight in France, so they, they made him a king there. They cut away half the land of Israel, and they were like, you be the king of Jordan, okay? And, and it was called Transjordan. They changed the names all the time. Bottom line is that because I know the history, I say that there's absolutely no claim of self-determination for Arabs Palestinians in this land. Zero. What there is, is that a non-jihadist, pro-Israel Arab, should have the right to live in Israel as a Muslim, Arab, Palestinian, whatever he wants to be called, as long as he respects our laws and our rights. This is our tribal lands. How many Arabs are there in this region? 400 million. How many Jews are there? 7 million. We're a tiny ethnic minority on our ancestral land. This is our ancestral land, so recognized by the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Quran. All right? It is, it is, it is known and recognized that the Jews are from this land. Uh, and now there's a group of people that want to fight us. So now they, in order to get, and I say this lovingly and without any, I'm not trying to make fun. They want to get good-hearted liberal folks to liberal-minded folks to believe that they have every right to this land. So they created this narrative. Now they want us to force us out. And then the minute we give them a chunk of land, they go back to what they're really about, which is jihad. Not all of them. Not all of them. Not every, I know not all of them. You don't have to tell me. I know maybe even better than you about the other Arabs that are not jihadists. But I'm telling you that there is a jihad out there. And that's the main impetus. And not land rights and history and all that. It's bogus. And this is our land. That's what people like me think. Why do you think the pro-Palestine movement is so closely associated with the left? Like, why are they so quick to jump on it? People especially that don't really have a strong association to the issue. Like, I can almost understand more people that have like, family or like a close association, but I don't know why the, this Middle Eastern conflict has become a, a difference between left and right. I don't, like, can you try to explain why that's What's Ariel from London asks a fabulous question, which I think is one of, should be one of the most fundamental questions that we should be asking all the time. Ariel, quite good. Give her a sticker or something, okay? All right. The reason I applaud your question is because I think that it's one of the greatest questions of our time, which is, what does progressivism have to do with jihadism? Like, why would these two completely, seemingly contradictory uh, movements and motives have to do with one another? Why would they be aligned? It's almost senseless. I think the answer is like this. It's, it's not a simple answer. So, okay. So, one is, I'll give a few answers, okay? Because a lot of times, these big sociological things have different... Guys, if you don't mind, I know, I know it's exciting, but just one second. Um, the uh, hating of Jews is a ancient, primordial feeling. But it's not nice. So in order to 
fulfill your anti-Semitism, you oftentimes need a good reason. You're like, ah, you see, they're killing the Palestinians. You see, and now I have the license to hate. Now I can hate fully because I've always wanted to hate, and I know I hate those pesky, stinky Jews, but I haven't had a real reason. Now I can feel good because they're the bad ones and they gotta be wiped out. That's one. Two, London, England, not so long ago, a gigantic empire. Ginormous empire. It held India, and Canada, and the islands, and it just and their ships, and the sun, sun never set on the British Empire. Suddenly they're a tiny little island, right? So they've become philosophically anti-colonialist, and now they're looking at the Jews, and they're like, you see, that's, we had something to do with that. And because remember, the British won World War I, helped us you know, create a state, and now they're like, no, 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 that's bad. We gotta be anti-colonial. So we, the, the Jewish, the Zionist project, since it's a colonialist project, needs to end as well. So they've got like this white guilt thing going on. Another reason is, because of their, that's a second reason. A third reason is because the liberalism of, of, of England has allowed jihadists to move in and basically take over, okay? It is not a safe place anymore. I, it's hard to say it. I'm a, you know, I like London a lot. It's a wonderful place, but it's not as wonderful as it used to be. And so today, you go to London, you may not want to walk around with a keep out there in the streets. You may not. And so that is also because, now you may not know this, but jihadism has a principle called hijra. Hijra. In Hebrew, hagira. What's hijra? It means that one of the principles of jihadism is emigration. You're supposed to emigrate to places and take them over from within. That's one of the pillars of jihadism. It's a stated and noted pillar. And so, and so that is what they've managed to do. And they've managed to bully and subdue others who have a different opinion. So these are some of the reasons why... And how come the like, pro-Israel movement has kind of taken association with the right wing? Right wing. Yeah. Because, because the left wing has rejected them. That's the only reason. The left used to appreciate... The left used to embrace Israel. Today, less so. And so therefore, the people who are pro-Israel have moved to the right. Also, there's other tendencies. These are, uh, uh, these are, these are big tendencies. Ariel. These are big tendencies of it's white... It's a, it's a, it, we're talking about generalizations. We're not talking about the particulars. Generalizations are useful sometimes. Right now, today in the world, religion and right-wing have merged. It used to be that they were very separated. Today, religious and political right-wing have merged, and left anti-religious have merged. It's a broader sociological question. My question is, like, this is just a companion question, but do you think if, like, if Hamas hadn't taken hostages that Israel would have already gotten rid of Gaza by now? I think we would have done more, that's for sure. I don't, what's get rid of Gaza? You can't get rid of Gaza. You get rid of the Hamas. Gaza, by the way, by the way, you know what I'm angry at, at the Hamas for in general, the Jihad? I'm going to say three names for you. Gaza, Hebron, Lebanon. These words have become to mean ugly things. You say Gaza, it's like icky. I'll get to you. You say Hebron, it's like scary. You say Lebanon, you're like, it's, it's hell. Lebanon, the word Lebanon in, in Hebrew used to mean beauty. Lebanon means, that's the name of the Temple Mount, the cedars of the Lebanon. You're as beautiful as the Lebanon. It's like a, 
It, it was considered one of the most beautiful places in the world because, you know, you had these snow-capped mountains and, and sunny beaches and these giant, giant cedar trees. But they've taken Lebanon, they turned it into a hell. Hebron, the word itself means chaver, chevron, comes from friendship. In Arabic they say Ibrahim Khalil Allah, that Abraham is the friend of Allah. They call Hebron Khalil, friendship. And yet they've turned it into this mess. Gaza, most beautiful beaches in the Middle East. Some of the best beaches in the Middle East are Gaza. That's right, Gaza is a beautiful word. And yet it's come to mean like something bad. And that really takes one second. And that really, that really bothers me. And so I hope that we get to a day where those names become beautiful again. You said that like the Palestinians don't deserve a right to a state because they've never had one before. I said that they do not, in my opinion, Sorry, they, don't they don't have a right to self-determination, a claim, they don't have a claim to self-determination. Well, why didn't they have the right to it before we ever had one? Because, good question, and I'll answer that. Because of five reasons, okay? What's your name, first name again? Kaya. Kaya. K-K-Y-A? Kaya, the answer is like this. There are five reasons why Jews have a right to the land of Israel. One, we had two states here previously. We had a state here 3,000 years ago. That's called the first temple period under King David. We had a second temple period state. If you want to read any historical documents from the Persians, one second, one second, one second, you asked the question, let me answer it. From the Persians to the Romans, they'll write to you, there was a state called, in, in, in Persian language, this area was called Yehud Medinte. There are coins like that, which means Medinat HaYehudim, the Jewish state, or as, as Herzl called it, Der Judenstadt. Okay? It's an ancient, ancient term. Okay, we had two states here beforehand. Then when Zionism came back, so that's reason number one. The archaeology, the coinage, the history proves that. Second thing is that we purchased a lot of land. We, we reached out to Arabs in the beginning of Zionism and purchased a ton of land because we were like, we want to make a Jewish state here. Can we buy it from you? They're like, sure. Give us a lot of money and you can have it. And we bought tons of land from them. Three is that in, in our various wars, they attacked us and we pushed them back. A principle of international law is when they attack you, when people attack you and you push them back in a defensive war and gain land, that land is yours. So... Historical rights, indigenous rights, purchase rights, war rights. Number five, excuse me, number four. Number four is that the international community recognized our rights to this land in the 1917 Balfour Declaration, 1920 San Remo Declaration, 1922 Mandate for Palestine by the League of Nations. Palestine was meant to be a Jewish state. Okay, read the Mandate for Palestine, it's on Wikipedia. Mandate for Palestine, the world recognized, all 56 countries in the League of Nations recognized Jewish rights and Jewish history in this land. So that's four. Number five is that since we got here, we beautified this land. Instead of crapping it out, we've made it beautiful, and that's a source of rights in some places. And number six, if you believe it or not, we have divine rights. You could agree to it, you could disagree. But according to the Jewish tradition, our peoplehood knows that God gave us this land. Those are six reasons why Jewish people have a right. The Palestinians don't have not one of those. Not one. They didn't buy the land. They didn't fight for it victoriously. They did not, they did not, no, no international serious legal document has ever been made, except for UNPS. Okay, so the bottom line is they do not have those rights. But the thing is, is that modern Israeli borders are not biblical Israeli borders. I gave you five other reasons other than the I'm Bible. Not, I know. Finish. Ahead, um, they're not biblical Israeli borders, and some of the land in the modern Israel was were belonged to Arab nations 
before, so technically you could argue that. What was belonging to Arab nations? Like a lot, like a good part of the South. The Negev. Not the Negev, but yeah, like the South. Like it, it's not Which the, country did it belong to? I don't know exactly, you can pull up the map. I can't pull up the map, but it will not answer your question because there never belonged to any other country. Maybe in, maybe in biblical times there was a time where Egypt administered, the ancient Egyptians administered the no, south of Israel. Like, there were Arab Phoenicians? There were Arab nations. The Arabs came in the year 630 approximately. That's no, it. there were Arab nations surrounding Israel during biblical times. They were not Arabs. They were Midianites. They were Moabites. They were Phoenicians. There were a million things. They weren't Arabs. The Arabs were from Arabia. They only came to Israel, this land, in, in around 6, 630. Okay, but also most mandates that you mentioned mandated a Jewish state in Jewish area as well as an Arab state. No. Or an Arab What happened was is that later on, when the British started sucking up to the Arabs because they had oil, then they started pushing the UN to create all kinds of uh, uh, non-binding ideas that they should divide this land in a Palestinian state. The original division, the big division, was Jordan and Israel. Jordan is the real Palestinian state. If Palestinian, and it was originally Jewish land. If, if Palestinians want a state, they have one right next door. Well, the and they should throw off their fake king over there. The British mandate mandated an area for Jews and No. Incorrect. Incorrect. Okay. That's, that's, just, that's just not correct. The The... Uh, the um, and, 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 and really I, I can understand what you're saying but I have to, I, with love I say this too I just, it's just because you're very smart I can see it I'm just older than you that's all so I've gone through this a few more times that's the only reason no I say this in a loving way I'm just saying I just know it a tad better yeah. you will know it better you'll know it as good as me huh? it didn't belong to the British held on to this land in order to create a Jewish state the British, the British kicked out the Turks. They were supposed to set up in this whole land, including Jordan, a Jewish state. Then they started reneging on that because of their oil needs. All right, listen, there's a lot of, a lot of technical stuff. Bottom line is I laid out to you six sources of Jewish rights, and there's zero of those are Palestinian. Okay? We'll talk about it more. Okay? I want to know if you think that... Um sort of like the sheer scale of what Hamas was able to do on October 7th is somehow, like in some parts, due to a failure in the IDF or something of defending against Gaza. Whether October 7th was in some way a failure of the Israeli army. Duh! Okay? Hello? They really, really, really screwed up. Really badly. And the reason they screwed up badly is because of of very bad conceptions, very bad concepts about how they perceive the Arab world. The girls your age were looking at the screens being like, I think they're practicing to destroy us, to kill us, to break through this wall, and to kill all of us. And they're like, hey, commanders, I think we see something. And they're like, no, everything's fine. They want peace. They have on video the, the head of army intelligence being like, we think Hamas actually wants to just be in governance and has you know no point, no interest in resistance anymore. They're just trying to solidify. They're building these tunnels, arming themselves to the teeth, right before our eyes, practicing to kill us. I mean, really, it's pathetic. How can they not know? Because they're, they did know. Because even in intelligence, and it's well known, it's almost a copy of what happened in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. When you have a concept, you read everything into that prism. 
into the way you've already conceived of it is how you see it. So people like myself are like, no, they're really bad guys. They want to kill us. We've got to really arm ourselves and protect and never let them have our land. And it's really bad. But you're like, no, 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 no. There's peace in this time. Hamas wants to be like a serious suit and tie player. They don't want to make war. And we should keep going with the two-state solution. That way we'll be normal. We're like, no, we're not going to be normal. They're going to arm themselves. They're going to kill us. We can't do that. So their conception caused them to take a lackadaisical approach. And all of their mecha- One second. And all of their... And you already had a question. They're, they're, they're technical. They also believe that cameras and walls and, and, and satellites and flyover stuff will defeat, uh, will defeat uh, ingenuity of the Arabs. And they had a very low opinion of Hamas. They think that they're a bunch of towel heads, a bunch of dummies, okay? Yeah, that's all kinds of stupid things like that. And people like me say, no, don't think of our competitors as dummies. They're smart, and they're, and they're dedicated, and you can't buy them off. And they mean what they say. And so they, they took it too lightly, and they got smashed. And, and, the, and, 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 our, and our, they breached the walls in 30 places. They, 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 they killed and mutilated. They had a whole uh, 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 like sexual abuse thing in order to demoralize us. It's already written up in papers what, what they were doing on purpose in order to, to, to break our spirit. They had a, their number one goal was to, just one second, their number one goal was to take hostages so that we wouldn't be able to fight an all-out war because they know the Jewish sentiment. You know, we're not the kind of country that's like, you know, got hostages, screw them, we got to, you know, like, you know, so R- Russia would be like, whatever, we just got to bomb them anyway. Well, we couldn't, do, we can't do that. And so they've slowed down the war, they've already managed to slow down the war, and they were very cunning. And when you deal with the Iranians who are behind this thing, they're super cunning. They're super cunning. On the other hand, on the other hand, we had unbelievable gvura, unbelievable heroism, unbelievable self-sacrifice, unbelievable miracles, unbelievable kindness that the Jewish people have shown one another and, and, you, shh, and unity that, that, that has come about. So there's also been very beautiful things. But was it a failure? Nobody will deny that. It was a, it was a, 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 a catastrophic failure. And, and, and heads are going to roll. And a lot of people, and we're going to feel the pain of this thing for the rest of our lives. This, this thing is with us. Hamas City uh, earlier and how the Hamas I think that's a great question, and it's one that I grapple with myself a lot uh, because uh, I, I'm, I find myself at odds with my with my beloved Jewish state and uh, and our government. Uh, we find ourselves at odds. I think that what you said is 100 percent correct, and I think that Hamas is only one manifestation of a much broader issue, which is what you said: ideology. Let's call jihadism, and so. If it was up, if, if it's up to Netanyahu at this time, then what is he saying? He says, he says, 
okay, you know, we just got to get rid of this organization that did this thing. Then when you ask him, you know, but are we going to rule Gaza? So he's like, well, our military will be here. And he kind of, it's not clear if it'll be an international force or, or God forbid the PA and all kinds of stupid ideas again. And people on my side of the aisle say, we should govern it and we should settle it and we should incorporate it into Israel and make sure that a Hamas ideology doesn't grow there again. And in general, your question is even righter in the sense that people like me think that we should fight jihadism, not Hamas. Jihadism is the stuff that's taught in schools. It's in the school books. I've seen them myself. I've held them in my hands. I picked out school books from garbage cans at Hebron and read through them and, and with Google Lens. And it's full of, full of jihadism and anti-Israelism. It's in the mosques. You don't have to be a big Arabic speaker to hear what they're saying on the mosques. It's, it's, um, it's in the radio and TV stations. It's on, it's on, it's on, uh, it's on TikTok. We have, in my opinion, we should have zero tolerance for jihadism in our land. Zero tolerance for jihadism in our land. We should have no no-go zones in Israel and certainly in Jerusalem. Do you know that two, three kilometers from here, there's a no-go zone that you cannot walk in? It's called Isawiya. It's right over here. It's not so far away. You, 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 know that, you know that we have that in our land? You know that in the Israeli Arab cities, there's at least, the police estimates, estimates 400,000 illegal weapons that can be turned on us at any time. And so, people like myself believe that we should fight jihadism. We should have zero tolerance for jihadism in our land. By the way, just so you know, jihadism is illegal in Egypt, illegal in Saudi Arabia, illegal in the UAE. But how do they deal with it in Saudi Arabia? About six months ago, you can look at the New York Times, the Crown Prince, MBS Mohammed bin Salman, uh, rounded up 83 former ISIS people who were threatening the regime, and literally on one Friday, cut their heads off in the square. Like this. He didn't do it, he had a henchman do it. Just, there's videos of it, it's quite gruesome. But the point is, is that they got rid of 83 jihadis on one Friday, just by cutting their heads off in public, to send a signal, we have zero tolerance for anybody who wants to undermine our regime. Do you know why he did that? Because that's the way things work around here in the Middle East. If you want to fight the jihadism, it can't be this like limited war against this one little organization. It's a much broader thing. And I'll say this to you, Daniel. I'll say this to you like this. If we don't fight the bad guys now, and I say this to my Israeli uh, uh, friends, colleagues, if we don't fight the bad guys now, our children will have to do it. We're going, and, and the way it's going right now is that we are totally cool with leaving it to our children to fight an even worse battle. In, in Lebanon, 150,000 accurate rockets are aimed against us. In Judea and Samaria, just like Gaza, same type of thing. In these mixed Israeli Arab cities, in Ramlet, Lod, Yafo, Akko, in the Negev, the takeover of the Bedouins, in the north, and yet. You know, people don't like to hear it. And that's a big reason why we don't deal with it, because nobody wants to hear about it. But that's the real truth. And if we don't clean house, we're going to face this again and again and again. I wanted to ask why, and if you, like, on your opinion, why the United Nations are so like, anti-Israel. Like, I know oh, yeah. the, like, the chief, UN chief, had like a bit of anti-Semitic background. But like, why is it exactly that for like, almost two months that barely spoke up about anything. The UN 
Let's make a definition. The UN is an anti-Semitic organization. Period. <laughs> okay? The UN, the UN is an anti-Semitic organization and has been. You can see it numerically. You can just see it numerically. They, they, they do. They have, they have departments of anti-Israelism. They have just Palestinian refugees or refugees all over the world. They have a, a department just for Palestinian refugees. They, they take their time just to single out Israel. They single out Israel much more than other countries. And, and I'm going to answer you like this. The answer to your question is, it's not really important. Why? Ask a sociologist. I'll, I'll give you a different answer. It's a fact that it is. What you said is a fact. And the answer is that, in my opinion, Israel should have left the UN a long time ago. The Taiwanese are not in the UN. There's no, they're not in the UN. Okay, so you, you can't survive in this world without being a member of that, of that anti-Semitic organization. If you really, really want to reach me, see Shai Fleischer, Gmail, it's really easy. I want to uh, thank you. I'm sure that not all of you agreed with me, and that's great. At least we had a conversation. And you heard from a real settler, a real right-wing guy, about how we see things. That's useful. Number three, and lastly, uh, I'm Israel Chai, and I urge you to uh, consider moving to the land of Israel. But definitely marry Jewish, okay? Thank you very much. All right, Malka Fleischer, thank you so much for joining me. And I want to finish off the show with one thing, Malka. I want to do a Torah thought, if I may. Um, I do this Torah thought almost every single year because I think it's very, very, very deep and true. You know, one of the biggest questions right now is the story of uh, uh, Shimon and Levi that destroyed the town of Shechem, Shechem, because they raped their sister, Dina. There's been posts, that's in this week's because Parsha. Shechem did. Shechem raped the, uh, their sister, Dina, and held her captive. They liberated her and destroyed the town. Uh, in in event in uh, and avenging through that uh, what they what Shechem did to their sister, um, and it's famous that Yaakov kind of chides them and he's like, "What have you done? You know, now everybody's going to hate us." And they say, "What are they? You know, should they turn our sister into a harlot?" And that's it. That's the end. And you never know who's really right between the two. And and not only that, a lot of right-wing folks say what's wrong with Yaakov didn't he see that they deserve death this town uh, Shechem the family of Shechem and the town of Shechem didn't they deserve the what they got and what why is he afraid of everybody like is he an exiled Jew is he a fearful Jew and um and people are just like you know people don't understand Yaakov's motivations and yet later on he 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 he's he chides Shimon and Levi again so a friend of mine, oh, and, and there's been a lot of posts right now, which they're like, they have they have raped Dina in our time. Where's Shimon and Levi? Mm. I've seen those posts out there. Obviously referring to the October 7th massacre. I want to tell you what, what a good friend of mine, Natan Katlarov, said to me, and there's just uh, been a rocket yeah, attack. We just, uh, as, we're, as we're recording, it's, it's a... Um Aircraft intrusion in the north. Three. All right. So, okay. we'll see. By the time you're listening to this, who knows what situation we'll be in? That's right. So, okay. I'm just finishing up. Malka, listen to this. You're going to like this, Malka. Natan Katlarov once told me in Beta El, he's like, he's a Russian guy, and he says to me, You know, I have idea why Yaakov does not like. And here was his theory. He said, What Yaakov was really upset about is that the brothers lured. Shechem into getting circumcised 
in order to marry in to the people of Israel. And he said, we can't, you know, we, we, we can't have you be not circumcised. We'll let you marry our sister. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll marry one another. You guys can share our wealth, but you have to be circumcised. And then on the third day after the circumcision came the two brothers, Shimon and Levi, and they destroyed that town. But says Natan Katlarov, what does he say? He said, what Yaakov was really upset about was that they used holiness as a trick. You can't use God's good name and tell people, oh, come, come to our shul. Come closer to, to, to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. Come, Yahadud, come closer to us and then strike them through that. You want to make a trick at them? Fine. You want to make all that war with them? Fine. But don't, don't use God's offices for those tricks. God's, God's name is a good name. You come closer to God, that, that, that's serious. And you, can't, you cannot um, uh, desecrate God's image in this world. Our whole thing as Jews is that we're here to make God's name great. And, and that was not making God's name great. I thought that was a very interesting answer, very, very provocative in my mind. Like, wow, that really made me think. And yet another uh, a warning right now, Malka. Eh? Yeah, that's right. Another rocket attack warning. Another uh, we'll see. infiltration, air, air infiltration warning or a rocket attack warning. So what do I learn from this, Malka? I learned that you got to kill the bad guys. You got to kill the bad guys, but you also have to sanctify God's good name. And that's what we got to do right now. We got to bring more Yiddishkeit. We got to light those Hanukkah candles and we got to kill the bad guys and get rid of them. We got to be the Maccabee. That's my, that's my, uh, that's my line for, 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 for Hanukkah. And what I'm asking everybody that's listening to the show is to make a poster that says, be the Maccabee. I want to see a picture of it. I want to see, be the Maccabee, hashtag be the Maccabee. I want an email from you to yishayishayflasher.com that says, be the Maccabee. I want to see a picture of you and your house and your kids and your dog or whatever it is in your pickup truck or wherever you are. I want to see you with your guns, whatever it is. I want to see, be the Maccabee. That's what we need right now. And I want really everybody to think, uh, Jew or Gentile, I want everybody to get ready to light Hanukkah candles this year. Everybody's got to light Hanukkah candles. Everybody. Everybody's got to light those candles. You got to make that light. You got to shine that light right now. You gotta, right. That- you know, Ishai, what you're asking actually is not so simple for everybody. You know that? Like we grew up in a generation where that is a piece of obviousness, right? You light your, your Hanukkah menorah and you put it in your window. That's Everybody does that. Who doesn't do that? This year, Ishai, I've been talking to a lot of people who live out in the diaspora and they're a little worried. They're a little bit worried about showing their Jewishness. And we're talking about places where it's been normal to be Jewish for a very, very long time. People are nervous about, about putting their Hanukkah on the window. What do you I think got, of that? I got two words for you guys. Loud and proud. That's what I got to say. That's it. You be, don't, don't go. If, if you're nervous about it, go bigger. Go loud and proud on it. And that's the way to do right. it. Go loud and proud and big it big. Get a bigger menorah this year, Harukiah. Put it bigger. And get other people to do it all around you. Get strength from being together. And just be loud and proud out there. There's sometimes there's these videos of these Jewish guys in the middle of a pro Palestine, pro Hamas rally. And the video is like I'm the one Jew. All of you guys are bleep, bleep. They're always cursing. You, you people around me right here, you're all a bunch of beep, 
beep, bleep, and you're, and I want you, I stand up to all of you. I've seen a few of these oh, wow, videos. Really? And every time I'm just like, wow. Like, Mamash, Mamash, a, 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 a lamb walking into a, a den of wolves and just being like, I'm not afraid of you. God is with me. I have truth. There's been a few of these. Wow. They're very chazak. And that's the Jewish people. That's Amisrael. So all I have to say is be loud and proud, and you will see that your neighbor will come over and say thank you. And that and that the police officer will come over and say thank you, and 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 that fellow Jews will say thank you, it's, and, and fellow lovers of Israel will say thank you. Right now, this this the, next week, the Hanukkah candles are more important than the flag of Israel. Like both of those are important. Put them together. But right now, it's time to light those Hanukkah candles. I want to I want to say an additional thing. It may sound like nothing, but I want to say an additional thing. If you're a non-Jew out there, I challenge you to to see somebody's menorah out in the window and contact and like either contact them your neighbor somebody that you know and be like i just want you to know i loved your hanukkah menorah on your window like show them support and you're if you're living in a if you're jewish you're living in a jewish neighborhood like give a compliment like i saw your menorah it's beautiful something like that like everybody it's time to give each other strength and support and solidarity Monk, I want to thank you so much for giving me the time today and giving me the spirit. Well, thank uh, you for having me on and allowing you, me to talk to all of our friends out there. You are the Maccabee, Malka, and I want to congratulate you uh, uh, for, for also... I got a little more Maccabean yesterday. That's right. You went to, to get your, your after, after 20 years yep. in Israel, to get your gun license and, yep. to, and procure a weapon. And you, you haven't received it yet. We'll talk more about it when but you receive it. I practiced on it. You practiced on it. It was a beautiful... Uh, American Springfield, uh, Springfield Armory. Hellcat. Hellcat, and, and which is not a mitzvah name, but I I can live with it. Gehenim Chatul. Chatul. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I have to it's find Maka, I wanna... We'll call it like Ari Yehuda instead of. Ooh, like I like Hellcat. that. I like that. I like that. Yeah. We'll talk more about it, Maka. That's our, our the cat is Arya. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Arya Gehenim. That's not Arya okay. Gehenim. <laughs> I don't want. I don't think I need a Gehenim. <laughs> thing with that's me. right uh, so it's so it's are ish that's what it's referring to the 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 head uh, it's really the fire, fire yeah F- yeah fire lion that's what you're fire lion. that's right uh folks i want to thank you so much i also want to thank the people that make this show possible moshe herman tabitha yocheved ben bresky and lewin were live make the show happen i want to thank them so much i want to thank all of you out there go to yishai at yishaifleischer.com support our efforts uh including fightforisrael.org that's all of the stuff that we're doing for the communities right now to keep them strong so fightforisrael.org yishaifleischer.com buymeacoffee.com forward slash yishai a million ways to connect and just write us an email be the Maccabee be strong God bless you wherever you are and remember Hashem needs our spirit right now Am Yisrael needs our spirit right now there's a million things to be down about but we need to be up and strong and and every attack everything that they hurt us with we're going to become only stronger God bless you folks Wherever you are, stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected. Lots of love and shalom. Shalom. Shabbat shalom.